0: in Daniel 2 this morning for our message as we continue our series, Unshakable um, from the book of Daniel, really focusing on the first six chapters. And um, and we're gonna be in, uh, like I said, chapter two is a big chapter. Um, and it's uh, it, it's kind of one of those chapters that you've heard a lot of the stories in Daniel, but you might have skipped this one, okay? Uh, it's kind of one of those that uh, you, you think about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego message. You think about the lion's den. You may have even heard about the one with the writing on the walls and, and some of those stories. But this one, sometimes, um, um, for some reason, get skipped. Um, but it, it's an incredible story, and it's the first time we see Daniel interpreting a dream and got, using the gifts that we saw God give him in chapter one um, uh, to, to, to minister and to, to be used by God there in Babylon. And so, um, so today, we, we're continuing that series. And our theme today, and the theme really of chapter two for us this morning, is the theme of an unshakable kingdom. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, an unshakable kingdom. The world. Uh, is full of kingdoms. It's full of rulers. It's full of reigns. We have nations, and, we have, and and throughout history, there have been more powerful nations, and nations that used to be more powerful are less powerful now, and there are nations that are powerful like ours that didn't even exist um, at the time that this was written. And, and you've seen kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, and, and kings and rulers come and they go, and presidents come and they go, and, and there's a hidden kingdom of darkness that's even at work in our world. Right, Satan tries to insert his influence wherever he can among the kingdoms of this world. But in the midst of all of this, there is an unshakable kingdom of God that is advancing. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to return to rule and to reign forever. And until then, his kingdom advances through him ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of his people. And so when people, uh, we talk about the kingdom of God, like you'll see that term sometimes in the New Testament, uh, the the clearest way to think about that is in terms of reign, okay? So the kingdom of God is synonymous with the reign of God. And So we know God reigns, but in a very real way, uh, Jesus' kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God was, um, if you will, it was inaugurated when Jesus came the first time, his first advent. When he was born into the world and he came preaching the gospel and healing and showing that he was the Messiah, living a sinless life, dying for sinners on the cross, dying in our place, rising from the dead. We call that the inauguration of his kingdom, right? He, he preached, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The inauguration, it's like it's splashing onto the shore. But then there's a consummation of that kingdom that's coming at the end of the age when Jesus returns, right? So we're kind of caught in the middle right now. He has ascended to heaven. He's going to return again one day, and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness. He's going to judge his enemies, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I believe in a, uh, we won't get into all this this morning, but a, a literal millennial reign for a thousand years, and then a, a new heaven and a new earth where he's going to reign forever and put an end to sin. Sin and darkness and all those sort of things. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the reign of God. And so right now, as Jesus sits at the right hand of God and the Holy Spirit indwells believers... The kingdom of God is represented on this earth through Jesus ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of people. We are, If you're a Christian this morning, you're, a, you're part of the kingdom of God, and God is showing his reign through reigning in your life, right? And so as we, as we submit our lives to Christ, as we follow his will, as he rules and reigns over our, our heart and in our life, and as we look with longing to the consummation of his kingdom when he comes back and literally rules and reigns in a new heaven and a new earth. But in this life, we face attention. all right? So while he rules and reigns in the hearts and lives of believer, believers, he's not ruling and reigning in everybody's heart and life. The kingdom, in the kingdoms of this world that we still see that are fallen and that are broken, he's not ru- ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of a lot of the people that direct the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of the world can be intimidating, right? We, we see nations that, that persecute believers. We, have a, we enjoy a lot of freedom here, thank God. But in other nations, they don't enjoy some of the freedoms that we enjoy. But they can't just be intimidating. Sometimes the kingdoms of this world can be alluring and tempting. And we can be tempted towards the power that they can sometimes hold and sway in the present life that we're in. So they can allure us to put our hope in them instead of the kingdom of, to God and his kingdom. They can tempt us to settle for earthly influence at the expense of our higher loyalty to God's kingdom. And Christians are always having to decide which king will get my ultimate allegiance. Right? Most, which will have my heart? Will I buckle before the kingdoms of the world and fail to be a faithful witness to the kingdom of God? We're always having to make these decisions. and we Even in our land today, we have to make these decisions. And Daniel in his day had to make these decisions. And the truth is, all of us, deep down, I think, want to be a part of something bigger than us, something that's eternal, something that's great. We know this instinctively that the kingdoms of this world are passing away. We've read the history books. We know they're imperfect, right? We see the news. We know they're flawed. We know things are um, broken. We know they can't last. So we, we kind of crave for something eternal. There's one king, and only one kingdom that's going to last forever, And that's the kingdom of God. And one of the things that this text this morning is gonna show us is that we need to be leveraging our life towards the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We need to be leveraging our life towards the kingdom that will not pass away and being representatives of that kingdom among the kingdoms of this world. So look with me. It's a lot of text this morning. We're going to skip some of it, and I'm going to kind of summarize it for you because it would take us a good while to read it, but we're going to read a good portion of it because it's Daniel chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read, and then I'll explain a little bit of what's going on, and I'll show you kind of where we're skipping ahead, and then I'm going to give you some principles um, out of this text. So look with me in verse 1 of Daniel 2. If you don't have the scriptures with you this morning, it's on the screen for you, or if you just prefer to read from there. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So let's pause there and remember what's happening from last week. Babylon this great kingdom from the Old Testament times back around 600 B.C. or so, has went and they have invaded Jerusalem. They have besieged it. They have taken it, so to speak. And some of the best of the people, even people of royal lineage, they have taken some of those youths and they've brought them back to Babylon and they have begun, we saw in chapter 1, to try to kind of... Uh, to, uh, to, to make them a part of their culture, to bring them into the king's service, to almost kind of brainwash them and reprogram them to be good Babylonians instead of good little Jewish boys and girls, right? And so here in, and, when we, and we talked last week about Daniel and his friends who are known to us, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, how, how these guys had have, have, have made some really strong decisions that while they were in Babylon, they would still live according to their identity as children of God. Uh, as, as Jewish believers in that day. And so, and so they had drawn some line in, lines in the sand. They had resolved to to not do some things. And God had given them favor. And we saw at the end of chapter one, he gave Daniel in particular, he gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And so when you get over here and you, talk, you, you see this talk about these... Um, sorcerers and enchanters and magicians. Well, Daniel wasn't one of those. He didn't partake in like these sort of weird, you know, dark magic or something like that. But because he could interpret dreams in their culture, he was looped in with them. Uh, We might would call these kind of, we look back and we call it kind of the wise men, as they would have called them, of their day. And so here we have this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, over in chapter 2 now, um, has had a dream and he's He's worked up over the dream. And in, in, in their culture, they had people that specialized in interpreting these dreams. And those are the people that he's reaching out to. The text actually goes on to say that the king is so troubled that he wants the dream interpreters that he calls before him to interpret the dreams, to not only interpret the dream, but before they interpret it, to tell him what he dreamed. See, it's one thing for me to say, Here, here's, hey, I had a dream. Can you tell me what it means? Here's what happened. And for anybody to be able to say, sure, it means... You know, and make something up. So he, he's so paranoid at this point, and he's so troubled by the dream, he wants to make sure he's not being had. So he says, so if you've really got powers, I want you to tell me what I dreamed. And they say, man, nobody can, can do this. And, he, and, and the king is really worked up over this. And, and he even accuses uh, the wise men of organizing against him. He's so paranoid. And it says down in verse 10. If you skip down to verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, the, it says, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or a Chaldean. Verse 11. The, king, uh, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So they say it's impossible. Nobody can tell you what you've dreamed and then interpret it. Not a man on earth can do such a thing. Only the gods can do this. And little did they know that the gods that they spoke of were not real, but that God is real and that he works among his people and he had gifted a particular man in their nation with this ability and and, and had chosen to work through him in this way. Well, the king decides, since they can't meet his demands, they're all to die. And so a decree goes out that all the wise men are to be put to death. So Daniel would be killed too. And Daniel finds out about this. Look at verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So he, he stops him, you know. I don't know if he has the sword raised or what, but he says, verse 15, he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As we know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego his companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night then Daniel blessed the God of heaven so where does Daniel go with this with this troubling news Uh, right he goes immediately to his other godly friends And they're there at his house, maybe they live together, I don't know, maybe they're just hanging out all the time, like a sitcom or something, just hanging out at his house all the time. But he goes there and he gets them, and the purpose he goes there for is to pray, because he's got himself in a bit of a situation now, right? He's promised this king that he is going to interpret his dream. Well, we know Daniel's been given a gift to do that, but he's got to do more than interpret it, he's got to know what the dream is. So he's desperate now. He's, he's, he's went out on faith here, and he's desperate, and so he see him gather them together to pray. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. This is after he gets the answer. To whom belong the wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So Daniel's worshiping, right? He gets the answer, and his initial response is to worship, to praise God, because it's not... Just what we're, to, we're not just to go to God and worship when we're, when we're troubled. We need to praise God for the answers, right? And so he, he's, he's giving a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving, and he points out some things we'll come back to about God in that prayer uh, that are key themes for the chapter. Daniel then asked to go before the king because he has the answer now. So that's where we pick up in verse 26. Verse 26, it says, The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. That's, that's what they had renamed him. That was his Babylonian name. He says to Daniel, he says, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. And so right there, you're kind of like, oh, no. And then verse 28, but... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that's my favorite phrase in the entire chapter. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So I love this section. He says, no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, none of your experts, none of the people you pay to do this can do this, but there's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven, and he can do this. There's a, uh, when the world fails you, Daniel's pointing out to us, when the world fails you, when the world shows itself foolish, helpless, and impotent before you, remember that there is a God in heaven who is all-powerful. Look at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. So here's the dream. We're finally getting it. You saw a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut, was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's what the king dreamed that freaked him out. He's like, what is this? This is weird. Giant, huge, intimidating statue crumbles to the ground, blows away. The little rock that broke the whole image when it hit it grows into a mountain. What does this possibly mean? He's troubled by it. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. His kingdom advances pretty much wherever he wants it to. All in the, all, That part of the known world, is, he took what he wanted. And he's letting him know, that can only be so because God's allowed it. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior, inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. When you really break this down, Daniel has boldly told the king, you've got all this glory and power that God has given you. But your kingdom is going to end. And then comes another kingdom. And then it's going to end. And then another kingdom. And then it's going to end. And then another kingdom. And then it's going to end. But there is a kingdom that is going to come. That's greater than all the kingdoms of this world. And it will never pass away. And that's obviously God's kingdom. It's the one that no human hand authored. It, it wasn't done by human hand. Now. Who are these kingdoms? That's you know what people like to talk about, even though that's not necessarily the main theme of this text. Everybody wants to know when we read it, what kingdoms do these represent? So let me tell you what I believe and what most conservative Bible scholars agree on this. Uh, there's some differentiation with other people, but this is the by, by large what we've traditionally held. The gold one is obviously Babylon. He tells him it's Babylon. He says, that's you, king. You know, the Babylonian kingdom lasted from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C., and uh, it was a powerful kingdom, even though in the grand scheme of history it was rather a short kingdom. The silver one, the chest of silver there, is the the, the Medo-Persia kingdom from uh, 539 B.C. to 331 B.C., so it lasted longer, but... but there's also, you'll see a digression here from gold to silver. There's ways in which it's weaker and most people believe what we're seeing here is moral digression. Humanity is always devolving, not evolving. We're not getting godlier. And then bronze. That's Greece. Built by Alexander the Great. 331 BC to 146 BC was the reign of Greece as the predominant kingdom. And then... You've probably already guessed, iron and clay is represented by the great kingdom of Rome, 146 B.C. to A.D. 1476. Lasted a long time, right? In some form or fashion. That's the general dates that that it was around. And some believe the toes of clay and iron mixed there towards the end, represent a future kingdom that would be sort of a revived version of the Roman Empire that takes place in the Great Tribulation and maybe talk more about in the book of Revelation. A unity of multiple nations led ultimately by the Antichrist. And it's very possible this is alluding to all that. But it's also better to study all that in other passages besides this one because it's not necessarily have to be true of this particular passage. That's not really the main theme of what we're getting about. But it's possible that, that it's alluding to that. There are some similarities between this and the passage in Revelation. But there's no doubt that the kingdom of God here is being set up and it refers, that, 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 that we're referring here, the kingdom that will last forever, that no human hand can author, the one that springs from the stone that crushes all the others, that's the kingdom of God. Now scholars do differ on whether he's referring to the inauguration, as we talked about at the beginning of the message, or the consummation of God's kingdom. Does it refer to the first advent of Christ and now he reigns and, and rules in people's hearts? Or does it refer when he comes back and we get a millennial reign a new heaven and new earth? Well... I kind of agree with Dr. Danny Aiken, who says it could refer to both. and I believe it probably does and many times prophecy works that way. There's dual fulfillments. But the big picture is that Daniel is letting the king know other kingdoms gonna, are gonna come and kingdoms are gonna go as God wills. But God is gonna build one that's gonna last forever. He's letting him know you're, not the, you're, not, you're, you're nowhere near as great as you think you are. And you're really, you're really great, you're really powerful. But there's one that is greater. Your kingdom is awesome. But it's not near as awesome as you think it is. There's a kingdom that's greater. There's a higher priority on the line here. Look at verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Verse 37, 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now don't get tempted to think Nebuchadnezzar's been converted here. He's not. Um, conversion is not, God is a God of gods, okay, so he's at, he's, now's a great time, he thinks, to add God to my list of gods, he's, Babylon had lots of gods, verse 48, then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, so now he's in charge of all these guys that he just saved the life of, by the way, Verse 49, Daniel made a request of the king and appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So the king is so blown away that he rewards Daniel and makes him this ruler. Daniel obviously remembers his friends and they're exalted as well. And you see God taking care of his people. He's prospering them in this particular godless sort of culture because he has a plan. He has a plan for them. He has a plan. He's building his kingdom. He's advancing his name. He's using his people. He's got a plan that cannot be thwarted no matter what the government situation looks like at that time or any time. And as we think about this passage, there are three key takeaways I want you to see about God and his kingdom versus the king and kingdoms of this world that I think are kind of big themes of this passage. The first one is this. God is sovereign over the kings and the kingdoms of the world. God is sovereign over the kings and the kingdoms of the world. God's sovereignty is a major theme in the book of Daniel. It may be even the major theme. And in this chapter, the, the, the key, one of the key themes is that God is sovereign over, over governments and over rulers, over those who have power. He, he's sovereign over the kings and kingdoms of this world. and He shows his sovereignty over the kings and kingdoms of this world in three ways in this passage. First of all, we see interruption. God interrupts. He interrupts the king's life with a dream, Right? God can interrupt the sleep in the life of a king or a president or any world ruler because he's in control at any moment's notice and how, any way he chooses to do so, and this way he chose to do it with a dream. And little did the king know, but he had placed into his service some God fearing people. Little did he know, but he's about to get counsel from a God fearing man. See, the king wasn't godly. He couldn't escape the influence of the godly, though, if God so willed it because God is sovereign over the kings and kingdoms of this world. He will interrupt the lives of rulers if he so chooses. He might do so with a dream. He might do so as he does here, not just with that, but with godly people being placed into their service to begin to steer their affairs. But God doesn't just interrupt here in this passage. He orders. We see God orders the kings and kingdoms of this world. In his prayer, Daniel says, God set up and removes kings. Also, the dream revealed just that, right? The kings and kingdoms of the world, they're being built and they're passing away in the dream. God sets up. God removes. There is no one in charge on planet Earth that cannot be removed at a moment's notice by God himself. He orders the affairs of the world and he orders the kingdoms of the world. He is sovereign over all these things. God has not forfeited his sovereignty to any government or any ruler. And God advances God can advance his people in the midst of an earthly kingdom. He can advance his agenda in the midst of an ungodly king or kingdom if he so chooses, because he's going to accomplish his purposes. Nebuchadnezzar would not have been voted, you know, most wonderful person to work for, he would not have been times person of the year. It would not have been any of those things. But God had so chosen to place people now within his administration, as we see here, like Daniel, who are godly, who now have weight and who now have influence, because God had a plan and God had a purpose that was bigger than evil Nebuchadnezzar. Even the greatest, most powerful person in the world was but a pawn in the hand of God. And Daniel got put into this situation because of God's sovereignty. And Daniel advanced further at the end of the situation due to God's sovereignty. Because God's advancing his kingdom agenda. And he, he's not letting Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon get in the way of that. No. It's quite the opposite. But Daniel and his friends in the midst of all this, you see, they... They don't stop trusting and they don't stop looking to God. And that's the temptation, right? When you kind of get troubled about things you see going on with rulers and, and all that sort of stuff. When you get troubled about things you see going on in the culture, when you see trouble, when you when you when you feel kind of this pressure and this weight, is to it's to stop trusting and stop looking to God. And but Daniel didn't do this. His friends didn't do this. They didn't freak out, right? it in our day. When Daniel, when 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 Nebuchadnezzar put out the decree to kill all the wise men in our day, you would have turned on the news and on one news channel they'd have been saying, "I cannot believe the king has done this. This is wicked and this is evil." And the other one would have been saying, "It's about time they killed the wise men, right?" And then then on another station they would have had two guys debating the whole thing, right? Why? Because it's business, right? It's 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 entertainment, right? It's to stir you up, right? To freak you out, and people make new make make money. Even on news channels, just freaking people out. We need to keep that in mind, that no matter what you see on the news, and whether your favorite channel is MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News, or whatever, whether you read Mother Jones or the Drudge Report, you need to keep something in mind. God is sovereign over the kings and the kingdoms of this world. And so no matter what you think about who's in charge and when they're in charge, under any administration, God's bigger. And he's sovereign. And he has not ever been shocked by any election result or anything that goes on anywhere. Daniel lived with peace. And we need to be engaged in our politics and the systems around us. We need to do it, though, in a Christlike way. We need to pray. We need to vote. We need to serve. We need to engage. We say this over and over around here. We don't need to lose focus. Daniel didn't. And I'm not saying there aren't big issues out there. There are. And Daniel's life is on the line. This is a pretty big issue for him. A bunch of people are about to be killed. He's one of them. So he's engaged, he's praying, he's working, but you don't get that he's fretful. You don't get that. He's at peace with the sovereignty of God. The second big takeaway here is that God and his kingdom is greater than the other kings and kingdoms. I mean, we can't miss that. And it sounds like, well, that sounds overly simplistic even, but that's something that's something we need to remember In our day and age and in every day and age, when you look at this passage as a whole, you see Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is passing, his workers are fretting, his culture's ways and wisdom is failing. They can't interpret the dream. But you see God's kingdom is advancing. God's children are peacefully and successfully working and God's wisdom and God's ways are prevailing. It shows us that God and his kingdom are greater than any earthly king or kingdom. God's word shows us this. The question is always, do we believe it? Right, Because we like tangible things, right? It's like this morning if I was to say, hey, I'll give you $10,000 in cash or, ten, or a check for $10,000. Who takes the check? Like nobody, We like tangible things, right? Yeah, I'll take the briefcase of money any day over the check that I don't know anything about. And it's kind of the temptation for us in this world as we look around and we see things that we can touch and we can feel. And if we're not careful, we'll sell out towards those things because we don't feel like we can touch and feel the kingdom of God. It fills out there somewhere, but we see Daniel living by faith, and we see this passage showing us we have to choose to believe that God and His kingdom is greater, more important, more powerful, more eternal, more lasting than the kingdoms of this world. Look at some of the ways that it shows us God's kings and God's God's um, God's kingdom is greater than the kings and kingdoms of this world. We see it's greater in wisdom and knowledge, right? They they failed God's people. Daniel interprets the dream showing God gives the wisdom. Uh, In verse 23, Daniel actually prays to you, O God, of my fathers. I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. Daniel knew the wisdom he had for this. It came from God. God's wisdom was trumping the world's wisdom. Uh, We see God is greater in power. Only God had the power to give this kind of wisdom and knowledge. Only God had the power to set up and take down kings as Daniel prayed. We see God and his kingdom is greater in quality. We we see in the dream the earthly kingdoms they advance but they all end. In Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, they, they've all fallen. They're not here anymore in, in, that, in, in the way that they were then. As these superpowers that are ruling the known world. And notice the earthly kingdoms, they all digress from gold to silver to bronze to iron and clay, because, as many point out, them Morality and even the unity of those nations got worse as time went on. They devolved. They didn't evolve. They didn't get better. Things got worse. And you know, everyone suffers from tunnel vision in their own age and in their own time. We all do. We think the world is better today than it's ever been. And there are certain ways that it is, right? Technology and medicine have advanced in such a way that makes a lot of things about life better. But we are no less flawed or less evil than we were Thousands of years ago. No less selfish, no less weak, no less sinful. We are not morally superior or better than Babylon. It was idolatrous and so is the kingdoms of today and so are the people of today. Only God's kingdom doesn't fade, grow weak, sinful, and evil. Only God's kingdom is perfect because it's from God. It, it progresses, right? It's the one that, it, didn't, it wasn't a human hand that crafted it, it said. It's pointing that out, right? It comes from God. And, and it, it, the stone becomes what? A mountain where the, the others are devolving. Man, it's progressing. Jesus even compared it in the New Testament to a mustard seed that began to fill the whole earth. And it's also not only greater in quality, it's greater in victory. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great of Greece, they, they won great victories, but in the end they died and ultimately so did their kingdoms in their time. Uh, they, the kingdom represented by the rock, though, grows, advances, lasts forever. Its victory does not end. Its victory continues forever. And lastly, they were greater in, it's greater in leadership. You know, many believe the rock in the story that represents the kingdom of God is also a picture of Christ. Psalm 118.22 tells us that there's a stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. Jesus says in the New Testament and the Gospels that this refers to himself. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.7, Peter tells us that the stone is Christ. Tripper Longman points out that in Luke 20.18, Jesus takes Daniel 2 and he takes Psalm 118 and he puts them together. Jesus quotes them about the rejected stone and about Daniel 2 there in, in, in Luke twenty eighteen, And he says, everyone who falls on the stone, the stone that was rejected, he says this, will be broken to pieces and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. Which refers to the stone and the crushing and the breaking in Daniel 2. That means those who reject Jesus find themselves, what, broken to pieces. And one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge the earth and his enemies will be Crushed. But the point of all that is this, is this passage is pointing us, it's telling us that there is a king that is greater than Nebuchadnezzar. There's one who who has got a kingdom that's greater than the the kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Alexander the Great. He's greater than Caesar of Rome. He's greater than any president or foreign leader that's ever existed. In fact, this one will judge them all, and you and me. And his final victory will be greater. His word is the final word. It's all his. But you know, there's another way that Jesus is greater than these kings. You know, all these kings came to be served and to conquer people to gain their victory. Jesus is certainly a conquering king, but Jesus came and laid his life down. He says, I didn't come to, to, to be served. I came to serve and lay down my life a ransom for many. Before Jesus ever asked us to lay down our life for him, he laid down his life for us. Totally different kind of king than Nebuchadnezzar. Totally different kind of king than Cyrus of Persia. Totally different kind of king than Alexander the Great. A king that came and laid his life down. You know, every ruler of this earth dies. Every king, president, governor, mayor, CEO, Wall Street tycoon husband, wife, mother, father, every leader dies. But the stone that points us to Christ, you know, Jesus rose again. He's the only ruler, he's the only king to, 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 to not only die, but to come back and to never die again. There is no king, there is no leader, there is no one like the Lord Jesus, and so therefore there is no kingdom like Yes. The third and final thing here is we see here, and we can learn from this passage, that God's people must be unshakable representatives of his kingdom on earth. And Daniel gives us a picture of that, of what God's people need to be about while they're on earth. How we engage with the kingdoms of this world. He's concerned with God's reign, God's kingdom, his... His work within the earthly kingdom that he was a part of was all about glorifying God and seeing God's purposes advance and honoring God and doing the will of God no matter what may come. He served and, and he helped and he did so in a winsome and wise way, but his chief, his, his chief responsibility he knew was to God. You know, all over the world, our country has, um, has representatives, right? We have embassies. We have ambassadors all over the world. And they represent the business of the United States of America there in in fill-in-the-blank of the country, right? They are living in a foreign, right now as I speak, they're in a foreign country, but they're representing us. They're representing the United States. It's a very good picture of what the church is as a heavenly embassy in an ungodly, broken world filled with representatives of a heavenly kingdom here to advance the agenda, not of the kingdoms of this world, but ultimately the agenda of another kingdom. It's a great picture for us this morning. And that's what we need to be about. That's what Daniel's about here. We, we see, and, and like Daniel, some things we can learn from him, we, we, need, we need to do this together. I mean, when Daniel, when, Daniel, when Daniel encounters this trouble, the first thing he does is he runs to his friends to pray, and he gets a prayer gathering together with other believers. Man, I'm sure Daniel was very grateful that he wasn't living on an island in Babylon. There might not have been many of them, and they might have been outnumbered, and the culture might have largely been against them, but they had one another. And the church needs to remember we're in this together, no matter what the world throws at us. Uh, we see the same picture in Acts. When they faced evil rulers in their day, the church is to be an outpost of heaven on earth, a place where believers know we can find real friends, real prayer, real encouragement, and go out from this place and live on mission. Like Daniel, we need to live lives of prayer. They prayed. That's it. That was, that was, and that's a habit of Daniel that we see. It's going to be carried out when we get over to chapter 6 as well. He just prayed. He was a praying person. Worship. That's another attribute of Daniel. What's he do when he gets the answer right? He's just, that prayer that we have recorded there in Daniel 2, it's just worship. He's, he's honoring God, he's praising God, he's giving God thanks in the midst of all this. You know, a great way of keep, be, being kept from being swept into the earthly kingdoms and being intimidated by or, be, or being allured by and selling ourselves out to them is worship. It's keeping our hearts and our minds orient, oriented on the one true king regularly choosing to get our eyes off of this world and onto God. But not only prayer, not only worship do we see from Daniel, we see wisdom. When Daniel heard about the king's decision to kill the wise men, the Bible says he replied with prudence and discretion. Right? He didn't go on like some rage tweets, right? Oh, I got it. You know, he, 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 didn't, he didn't, you know, in our, in our day and age, people hear about something they like or they don't trouble So we just get angry about it, and we just, foolishness comes out of our mouth a lot of times, or out of our, you know, the keyboard cowboys, as we call them. Daniel, so I'm going to be prudent. I'm going to use some discretion. I'm going to watch what I say, and I'm going to do something, right? I'm going to engage in the situation. He's he's being wise here. He's not being foolish. He, he, He could have gotten mad. He got every reason to be upset. He's about to be killed. He didn't do anything wrong you got every reason to just go off, you godless, wicked king, you're a horrible person. And he'd be dead in five minutes. But instead he says, what's the problem, you know? Why is everything so urgent? Let's all take a deep breath and let's talk about this. Oh, you know what? I've got the answer. And then he goes and he gets along with God. Wisdom. But also we see from Daniel and his friends bold mission. Bold missional living. Daniel boldly goes before the king and delivers the word that God gave him. And it wasn't all good news for the king. You know, the king only seems to be focused on the fact that he's the head of gold. He liked that. But there was some bad news in there for the king. He seems okay with that because for now, things are fine. And as someone said, what Daniel said to God in worship and prayer, he was willing to say to the king, to his face. God sets up kingdoms and kings, and, and God takes them down. It's bold. But he's telling this king, my God is greater than you, and his kingdom is greater than yours. That's the message of the dream, right? That his kingdom's going to end, and, there, and other kingdoms are going to end, but there's coming one that won't end. And Daniel, you know, he could have been troubled by having to deliver that message, but he understood something that we need to understand. He's not the editor. He's just the paper boy, Right? He don't get to edit what's in the news. He just gets to throw it on the doorstep. And that's what he does here. And that's all we are. We're not God's editors. We just herald the news. And like Daniel, we need to live on mission, boldly delivering the good news of the gospel to all those who will hear it, whether they're in authority or not in authority, with boldness, with wisdom, with winsomeness. And, you know, I think Daniel could do this and he could live on mission like this because he was convinced God was sovereign over the king and his kingdom He was convinced that God's kingdom was greater and that God was greater. And he was committed to representing his true king with unshakable commitment. You know, the world would sometimes prefer that believers just kind of shut up and go away. But it desperately needs us to speak up in the right way. It desperately needs us to be engaged. If Jesus calls us the salt and light, That means the world is a dark, dark place and we have a role in it whether the world likes it or not. And we have a a responsibility to engage with the world in a responsible and wise way. But let me tell you, if you don't know Christ today, the good news of this passage is that you can be born again into a new and better kingdom. Uh, that, that that, that, That the greatest king that's ever lived or ever will live died for you. Died for you. Long before he comes to you and says, be committed to me, he says, I'm going to lay my life down for you. And he died for your sin on the cross and rose again. And now he says, follow me. Who wouldn't follow a king like that? If you've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, that's always the first invitation. But if you're a believer this morning, if you know Jesus and you're a part of this greater kingdom, we need to constantly be recommitting ourselves to advancing God's kingdom. Be preoccupied with the kingdom of God rather than the things of the world. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that we worry about, we fret about, we're concerned about, that are important, they'll be added to you. But you concern yourself chiefly with God and his kingdom. And he even taught us to pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whether it's our living or whether it's our praying, Jesus has taught his followers to be consumed with his kingdom. Let's pray.